Okay, good. I think we should get going. Thank you very much for, for coming tonight to this event. This is the launch of a new MOOC that is in collaboration with the World Bank and the LSE and Participedia and Civicus, which is on citizen engagement. I'm Jean-Paul Figuet, Professor of um, Political Economy at the International Development Department here at the LSE. It's my great pleasure to, to welcome all of you and to welcome our guests and panelists. There are going to be a lot of people on the stage, so I'm going to give super brief presentations of the first batch, and then I'm going to hand over to my colleague Abba from the World Bank, who will take over and introduce the second batch of speakers. Because first, we're going to, we're going to talk about this particular MOOC, which is now online, has upwards of 14,000 participants already, and we're expecting many, so people are signing up very quickly these days, so we're expecting the final number to be bigger still. So it's a very exciting kind of experiment for the ID department at the LSE um, in, in this sort of material. And let me start off by, by thanking the bank in particular for sponsoring this MOOC and giving us the, the idea of doing, of going down this path um, and, and, uh, and organizing all of it. Different modules, as you'll see, have been designed by different people and with different institutions in the lead, which will say more about shortly, but the bank has really been the driving force behind this, and in particular, taking something and, and using it to massify education, the, the sorts of learnings that we hope that we, we've been able to develop for free all over the world to anyone with, with access to, to a computer. Um, let me introduce very quickly the people on the first part of the panel. So we have, in order here, we have Soren Giggler, who's a I'm proud to say a graduate of our department and now senior governance specialist at the World Bank. Next to him is Dr. Dr. Soren Giegler, Dr. Shirin Madan, um, who is a colleague of mine in the ID department and also in the information systems uh, department at the World Bank. Um, and then lastly, Lenny Wild, who's a research fellow in politics and governance at ODI. Um, and I was going to tell you tall stories about citizen engagement transforming governance in Bolivia and Bangladesh until I thought, I'm not a student, and none of the other panelists are students, and a MOOC is all about studying and learning, so it's better if I give my time over to a real-life student. So I've asked my student, Yezil Deniz, who's a master's student in the MSc in Development Management, to basically take over my slot and do a better job than I can. So Yezil, please. Oh, I don't think I can do a better job than you, but yeah. Um, when I was first introduced to this idea, I felt excited and emotional, and I tend to get that way, but yeah. My first thought was, those who do not have access to top quality education, or to education, uh, are going to feel welcomed. They are going to be given a second shot in life to begin from scratch, to close a gap that they perhaps thought they wouldn't be able to. And I said, it's not just about those that have been excluded, but also those who want to pursue a particular field further or seek further professional development. My first reaction towards this project was that of empowerment, an empowerment in the right sense. So empowerment through, um, through spreading information, knowledge, through advocating a particular culture of openness and achievement that seeks to eradicate boundaries of class and gender and race and time and space. Blurring the lines, hopefully, between the haves and the have-nots. And the way this platform is engineered so online, self-paced and flexible, is consequential for the developing world, and I come from one. Um, it will improve lifelong learning skills and, ad and advance active learning, consequential for the developing world particularly, because it gives you agency 
to improve in your own advancement. Um, it promotes the notion of choice and gives power to manage your life rather than power over. It will perhaps open doors for new initiatives, trigger similar business ideas, or purely passions, be it professional, academic, uh, or intellectual. It will cherish alternative mediums of communication, alternative spaces for discourse and sharing, and hopefully it will lead to an overall community development. Don't challenges exist? Of course they do, like the assumptions of digital literacy and access. So I began wondering about what needs to be done from a student's perspective to make sure that I feel just as excited and emotional in a couple of months from now. The focus should not be on not just be on availability and access, but also on academic rigor, ensuring success. It should make sure not to reinforce certain norms and privilege represent address a particular voice, but target, apart from being free of charge, low-income, underprivileged households, not only students, but also other segments, like stay-at-home mothers. It should consider what would a technology do and what it can undo. Consider who the technology winners are and who might potentially lose. So I came to the conclusion, well, this is very humble, it needs to be humble, but, um, that what would differentiate this project from the rest is that it should be presented and delivered in such a way that those who have access themselves feel the urge, want, and realize the necessity to inform and reach out to those that do not. So rather than top-down, this project should develop and progress intercommunal and should be owned by those within. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, and next we have my colleague and, and our former student, Soren Gigler. Do you want to stand there? Or do you want to present you? I guess probably better. Yeah. Thank you so much. So it feels really good to be back as a former student. <laughs> so thank you so much. The first thing I wanted to thank our partners. This never ever would have been possible with the real fantastic leadership of uh, the ODI, LSE, Participedia, which is a network out of Harvard, and Civicus, largest civil society, one of the largest civil society networks. And uh, I see Mary McNeil in the room, our former colleague who we worked very closely day and night also to put this together. So now, uh, just quickly, uh, citizen engagement. So I thought to start about citizen engagement and why does it matter for development. The first issue is citizen engagement is not new. We just talked to Tim Allen. For instance, there's a World Bank book from 1982 entitled People Put People First. So it's an old, old idea, and it has its waves, its hypes and downs, but basically now, again, we are here to discuss citizen engagement, which is at the core of development. So it's not just about development outcomes, as we see later, but now talk about development outcomes. So the hypotheses would be that increased government and actually donor openness combined with improved citizen feedback in service delivery would lead to more responsive and more trusted institutions. And if that's the case, we could potentially have better development outcomes. So now this is just so the chart, as I just mentioned. The only idea is it's not new. <laughs> there was Voices of the Poor in the 90s. There's basically a long process of this Jonathan Fox break, groundbreaking work on the struggle for accountability. 
So the accountability challenge has been core and central for international development for a very long time. So as we see, and I'm sure Vanessa will talk more about that, transparency, accountability is not the same thing. So while you can have, we have all these cases where we just assume by making a budget public, posting it on a website would make government accountable. It does not. It's just the first step. Transparency is critical, but transparency does not mean accountability. Accountability is about being responsive, answerability, to really take people's voices into account and change course and make adjustments to your plans and policies you had before. And then coming back with that information uh, to, to the citizen and people. So what are some entry points? So right from the beginning, it's not only about programs, it's about policy as well. So citizen engagement, so even enabling in budgets and open data, but basically how could we facilitate a process whereby country systems, government systems themselves change over time. So it's about institutional and cultural change. So actually I'm working my head on a blog for a long time called From Citizen Engagement to Inclusive Institutions. Because it's not just about voices it's very important to have empowerment and voice and accountability, but if nobody's listening and nobody's responding, then this is not institutional change. This is not really at the core of, of the issue. Uh, strengthening through programs and projects through consultation. Here's a big challenge as all like is upstream or downstream. What what I mean by that? Is it just to almost co-opt civil society and say, now we have designed the project, we have a consultation, and whatever we have planned, we implement? Or is it, in fact, at early on that we really go back to the communities and ask themselves, what is your vision of development? What are your priorities? And how can we help that this comes to? So years ago, we did a workshop with indigenous leaders and all they did, we asked them, what is your vision for your community for the next five years? You define it. In Colombia, there's something called Planes de Vida, which is community development plans developed by the communities. And then the government and donors can come in and help the communities realize their own view. So now, uh, just on the MOOC. So what is a MOOC? I hope <laughs> this massive open online course. So it's really connecting, and we are very much hoping that this democratizes learning and knowledge. So last night, I was up all night facilitating discussion, and I was just amazed. We had people from rural Myanmar, we had participants from Lesotho, we had people from Nigeria, people who could never, ever afford to come to the LSE uh, to participate in this type of uh, knowledge and learning. And it's not only passive learning, but they actually challenge us with their questions, and at the end, they will, all the participants will come together and develop their own project on citizen engagement in the local community. So uh, the value is free, open, and easy access. Of course, has its limitation, rural areas, and so forth, but we are just amazed that more than 14,000 people and many from all kinds of backgrounds can, can join this, this experience. Um, so the objective is to increase the awareness about citizen engagement. So why does it matter for development? We really see it as a global public good. 
So anybody can participate or not. It's completely free. Second, it's create some knowledge and most important, the, the knowledge communities. So here are the partners again. Thank you so much and look forward to this rich discussion. Okay, so why, don't, why don't you go ahead? We're going to show a video, but we can, we can do that after the conference. Okay. Just ignore him while he okay. <laughs> draws up the video. Hi, everyone. Well, Jean-Paul and I have tried to focus on the relevance of citizen engagement for public service delivery. And what we've tried to do is, our approach has been to take stock um, of what we've learned in this particular area uh, as our input into this MOOC. I think one of the key messages that came out from our input was that, yes, citizen engagement can be a game changer um, for development. However, as we've just heard just now, um, only if there is also um, an equal focus, I would say, on the issue of accountability and putting in place the mechanisms which are necessary for achieving accountability. And I think three of the key points that came out of uh, the work that we were doing, I um, just want to say a brief few words about them. The first one is related to the issue of uh, decentralization. And I think an important point here is that um, engaging the community is, of course, a necessary first step. However, we are also as um, focused, we should be as focused on um, empowering the community, and this means devolving power to the institutions that exist to support the citizens or the community. Um, the road, indeed, there have been lots and lots of projects of decentralization. So, you know, attempts which have been made to um, uh, go down the short route to accountability in order to make service delivery uh, more accessible to citizens. These have been tried for decades. Um, yet, when it comes to trying to understand how do we achieve this short route or short, short road to accountability, we do have to keep in mind that this is actually a very long-term undertaking. It's a long-term undertaking. It's not a short-term thing. Not only is it long-term, but it's, it's connected uh, very much um, at an operational level connected to the politics um, of, of any society, the economics and politics within which we're trying to attempt this intervention of decentralization. Then we know that there have been plenty of experiments at decentralization, but a key question has always been why does it work in some places and why does it not work in other places? And one of the things that, uh, that Jean-Paul, drawing on, on your research in Bolivia in uh, the mid-1990s, for example, why was it that decentralization experiments in some municipal corporations did work and some did not. 
This then takes me, I think, to the second main issue that we try to contribute in, in the MOOC, which is related to the concept of, um, of innovation. Now, when we're talking about decentralization, again, I think a lot of the literature has already shown that with big question marks as to there's elite capture, there are problems of local capabilities, local capacities, so um, is this really the route to, to go down? Well, uh, yes, there's a lot of um, worry and concern when uh, countries have gone in for major decentralization programs. Looking at the work that uh, Jean-Paul was doing in Ethiopia, however, nonetheless, this is a traditional hierarchical society and also there are problems of lack of capacity of authorities, local authorities. Yet, it was surprising to find that decentralization was effective in uh, providing better access for ordinary Ethiopians. And one of the reasons for this was related to uh, innovation. But innovation, I think, when we're talking about it in terms of increasing motivations, incentives, creating competition at the local level, and providing discretion for public servants. And this then takes me to the last point, um, which is what exactly do we mean by innovation? I think I, I often feel that today the term, you know, we, we kind of associate it immediately with new technology innovations. Um, I have been looking at some, for some time now at uh, public health, uh, primary health care delivery services in both India and Tanzania, rural parts of the country. And it seems to me that, yes, information and communication technologies, web-enabled management information systems are great. They are great because they improve the efficiency of hierarchical reporting. We all need this. It's, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, having said that, though, experiments which are done to uh, create a stable, stable structure of governance at the village level, which comprises of health, civil society, politicians, which, are now, which have now been experimented for several years, in India for about eight years. If we can now think of innovation in that way, of both the technology and the non-technological part of it, and try then to think of ways to integrate the two, because the knowledge base at the village level can never really be replaced um, if, if we don't include uh, the source of that knowledge which exists at that level. That's really what the points I wanted to make. Thank you very much. And lastly, in this part, Dr. Lenny Wild from Adia. Great. I might just sit here, if Absolutely. that's okay. Um, sure. Thank you very much to LSE for hosting this launch event. I'm going to keep my comments quite brief so we can get to the, the main act of the debate um, today. Um, but I'm from the Overseas Development Institute. We're a think tank uh, based here in London working on a range of development issues. And I've worked for some time on research around citizen engagement in decision-making partly in, in relation to service delivery, but also in a range of other sort of policy areas. And I'm pretty convinced that where decision-making doesn't take account, doesn't engage with, doesn't think about what citizens want or need, it often falls flat. And I think we see that here in the UK as much as we see it in a range of developing countries. Um, at the same time, I think that this sort of term, citizen engagement, has been treated in some of the sort of development uh, uh, policy space as a bit of a tick box exercise. 
you know, it's been all too easy to say we've engaged citizens um, um, without really taking, paying attention to whether they have been substantively involved in the decisions that, that will affect their lives. And I think there has been a real lack of clarity at times about what the purpose of citizen engagement is and how to do it effectively. So, to me, this course comes at a very sort of opportune time because I think the different modules help to give some clarity about what we're talking about, help, help to give some sort of boundaries around this. But I also think it doesn't shy away from the fact that this isn't a sort of technocratic issue. It doesn't shy away from some of the politics and the power relations that, that sit at the heart of it. Um, and I guess in our contributions to the MOOC, I think some of the things we've tried to emphasise is that this is a very um, sort of complex and diverse landscape that we're talking about. You know, it spans everything from taking part in an election to participatory budget exercises, scorecards around public services, through to protests and social movements. So, again, I would emphasise this isn't just about a sort of polite debate that happens. It can be about sometimes, you know, violent protests and struggle as well. And I think um, it's sort of, it's, it's striking the extent to which often this can reflect quite profound dissatisfaction with voice and representation in both democratic and more authoritarian settings. And I think some of the protests we see in Brazil, in Mexico and elsewhere over the last few months sort of really bring that to life. So I think what's, what's good about this course, even having the partners that it does, is that those issues are on the table. Um, I think, moreover, and coming from ODI, where, we're, where our focus is also on sort of policy-relevant research, what I think is useful is that it also puts sort of centre stage the challenge that governments, that NGOs, that those funding development assistants face in this area, which is that we know there are really good examples of innovative citizen engagement work happening, but that it's still often quite scattered, quite small scale, and there's a real challenge about how you ensure that that has an impact that's, that reaches much more widely in different areas. And I think the course introduces the kinds of questions we need to be asking about kind of where, how, and why can citizen engagement really lead to, sub to kind of substantive uh, change in different areas and really brings that that focus back on what's it going to take to, um, to make this be something which is, which is uh, significant. So I think, to me, you know, getting to the core of, if you like, why and how citizen engagement matters, it is about politics, it is about power. I think it's good that this course kind of has that on the agenda. Lots of the presenters pick up on these themes and give some really interesting examples from their own experience in different countries. So I guess I would just urge you to sign up and join in the conversation. Excellent. Great. Thank you very much. So while we, we do the swap now, let me play you a quick clip from this particular move. You, you've heard us opine about it. You may as well see a bit of it. I'm hoping the volume will work. <laughs> is often brought an engagement a game-changer for development. We're looking at a wide range of innovations in this course, many of which have been brought about by the ICT revolution. 
We're looking at things like crisis mapping, the crowdsourcing of constitutions, and we're looking at whether those are really working or not. I think key aspect of the course is that it will be very interactive, allowing for people to contribute their own experiences, ideas, and learn from best practices and good cases from around the world, and it's very concrete. We're really excited about this course, and we think you will be too. Okay, so now let me introduce Abba Joshigani, who's going to be moderating the second part of it, which is the panel where we're going to discuss both the, the concepts of citizen engagement and also MOOC as a technology and modality for delivering teaching and learning along these lines. Abba's Director for Knowledge Exchange and Learning at the World Bank Institute. Um, and so I'll turn it over to you, and if the other panelists can, can come in and sit on the stage, and she can introduce them and run the show. So good evening, everybody, and, and thank you for coming. Um, I know it's a cold evening outside, and this is a warm place, but I'm sure it was more than that which brought you here. So uh, really happy that you're here, and um, thank you, Jean-Paul, for hosting this and uh, uh, you know, putting, putting this all together. I think we heard initially from our um, four speakers about, firstly, about the MOOC. Um, does it democratize education? Does it allow us access? Um, and what does it really mean? And then secondly, and as importantly, we heard about um, citizen participation or citizen engagement itself. And we heard everything from um, empowering citizens to engaging citizens to democratizing, um, uh, to decentralizing the whole process. But also, as importantly, whether citizen engagement has just become a fad and a tick box exercise and um, or do we understand the complexity um, and, 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 um, and really the political economy behind citizen engagement and giving voice um, as against accountability? So today we have a fantastic um, panel here. And they come from uh, basically diverse backgrounds, but all from NGOs and CSOs and, and academics as well. And uh, I think what we will do is uh, really delve into the issue of citizen engagement, of, of accountability, and of transparency, and exactly how do we, um, how do we catalyze development, and how do we, in fact, um, invigorate this whole um, debate on, on development. I'll introduce the panelists first, and um, given the fact that there's uh, not a whole lot of time, I'm just going to uh, direct one question each and then open it up to questions, because I think, as an audience, I've always felt that I haven't just come here to listen. I want to participate, and I want to ask questions. So um, firstly, let me introduce Vanessa Herringshaw. 
She's Program Director of the Transparency and Accountability Initiative, and her work has centered on strengthening accountability and governance in areas including economic policy and poverty reduction, the extractive sector, health services, and children's rights. Our second panelist is Duncan Green. He's a senior strategic advisor at Oxfam UK and also a professor in practice in the Department of International Development at LSE. And he was previously senior policy advisor on trade and development at DFID. Um, our third panelist is Frederick Galton. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. He's the chief executive of Integrity Action and he specializes in strategic corruption control, including issues of fraud and organizational integrity. And he was the founder of the Integrity Education Network, uh, which comprises over 400 universities. Our fourth panelist is Duncan Edwards, and he's the program manager for Making All Voices Count uh, Research, Evidence and Learning Component at the Institute of Development Studies. And his work is focused on building an evidence base in the field of citizen engagement and accountable responsive governance. And our last and fifth um, panelist is Owen Bader, and he's a senior fellow for the Center for Global Development and visiting professor in practice at LSE. And he's worked as private secretary to the Prime Minister and to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, as well as for DFID, where he was Director for International Finance and Global Development Effectiveness and Director of Communication and Information and Head of Africa Policy and Economics Department. So you can see that we have a huge depth and breadth of experience here, a huge uh, diversity of views, um, and we look forward to a fantastic um, discussion today. So my first question I'm going to direct to Vanessa. And, you know, we've been talking about um, transparency and accountability and many governments are actually committed to openness. So, you know, you, you do a budget, you put it on the Internet, and that becomes openness and transparency. But could you reflect a little bit on, you know, is, uh, does transparency automatically mean accountability? And how do we get from transparency to accountability? What do we need to push that agenda? Okay. Um. Three thoughts. One, and most obviously, there's absolutely no automatic connection between any of these things, between transparency, between citizen engagement, and between accountability. None. Zip. Nada. And, and I want to emphasize it, because when you look at a lot of programming that you see, we still see programming that's done like that, like I prod the transparency, and then that's going to magically transform, or I prod the, the engagement also. There isn't. It, what we really need is this joined-up approach between those three areas altogether. Second point I wanted to say, it's very interesting when I was looking at the literature for this, sometimes it says uh, engaging citizens, and sometimes it says citizen engagement. Mm -hmm. Are they the same things? When I say to you, uh, engaging citizens, what's the first thing you think of? Who's doing the engaging? Well, at least I do. Okay. And so it, for me, it has this thing about somebody's facilitating that, maybe someone's facipulating that, um, it's, got, it's coming with a prior agenda. I'm not saying that's not legitimate sometimes, particularly with governments wanting to do that, but that to me is very different from citizen engagement, which is I, the citizen, have thoughts, I have views, I have concerns, I want to take it in. And what does that mean for external programming? It's the difference between facipulating, if I'm 
I mean, I'm exaggerating for effect, and supporting and enabling. And the latter is, all, as, as Lenny said just a minute, is all about power. And it's all about changing incentives and rocking the boat. And it is as much about confrontation as it is about cooperation and all those other things. So I'd be super careful when we're using these terms about what we're talking about because they're two very different things. And then the last thing I'd say, this is the big elephant in the room, the big pachyderm in the plaza, (laughs) which is civic space. Lots of governments are saying they love openness. We love openness. It makes us look great on the international stage. We've got lots of brownie points for a woo-hoo. We don't like accountability at all. And, and meanwhile, while you're over here busy with open government and open data and lovely engagement processes that we're crafting very carefully, over here I am closing freedom of speech, I am shutting down freedom of association, I am making it impossible for organisations to receive funding, I am making all that engagement space shut down. And this is not theoretical, these are the global trends at the moment. Increasingly well documented. So, I'm not, I'm urging you, yes, absolutely get engaged with the citizen engagement, but meanwhile, look at the broader context and don't take the eyes off the broader prize of that context that actually allows this stuff to even happen at a basic level. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. So really you're saying that on the one hand we may be talking about citizen engagement or engaging citizens being two very, very different things, talking about openness and big data and all of that, but at the same time we, we are, or a lot of governments are, closing down any space where this kind of engagement or debate can, can take place. Um, so based on that, I'm going to turn to Owen Bardo, and I'm going to, I want to ask you, Owen, what role can civil society play in building a relationship of trust between citizens and governments, and how can we move from a mindset of um, cooperation, from confrontation to cooperation, the other way around? I think it's mostly from cooperation to confrontation, but how do we move from confrontation to cooperation in that space? That's a really interesting question. Uh, so I think there are, there are two things I want to challenge about the question. One is, who's this we who mm-hmm. wants to move from um, uh, confrontation to cooperation? Uh, do you mean we external actors, or is the we within a, a society? And the other is to echo what Vanessa just said, which is um, we need to be careful about thinking that removing confrontation is a desirable outcome. I mean, this is, a, in the end, a power... Uh, you know, part, of, part of change is about, is about um, uh, reassigning power within a society, and that does involve... I have to mention the word power, because otherwise Duncan will say... The problem is no-one's mentioned power yet. <laughs> so, so I've mentioned power, so you can't say that. Um, it, so let's think carefully about, uh, about what, what we want in terms of a change relationship between civil society and government. It seems to me that we often make the mistake of thinking that the social contract between government and citizens is something that can be brought about through some series of fixes that will make the social contract work. We often hear that tax is the answer to the social contract. We've heard that property rights are the answer to the social contract, that democracy or transparency or citizen engagement 
It seems to me that the social contract is something that emerges from the evolution of institutions within a country. And that evolutionary process, in the end, can't be bypassed. You need institutions to evolve that are both challenging each other, uh, constraining each other, and supporting each other and creating the authorising environment for each other. So if you try and change one of those institutions, citizen engagement or the legal system or your parliamentary democracy or the free press or your property rights, and it isn't in the context of the evolution of these other parts of the system, they will lack the authorising environment in which to operate, they will lack the constraints on them that they need to work properly. So we should be thinking, we, we who are interested in um, seeing that evolution happen better and faster, need to be thinking about how we can accelerate that evolution. And that, that means thinking less like Dr. Frankenstein building his monster, trying to put together the parts of a being that will, that, that will look like a, a human, and think more like a plant breeder. What, how, how do we allow the evolutionary process perhaps to go a bit further and a bit faster by bringing things together, letting them collide, letting good things happen and, and killing off bad things? So we need, we need to think of um, uh, an external role in this space, not as trying to design a social contract by figuring out what the components of it are, but by understanding what we can do to support an environment mm. in which that evolutionary process takes place, and it'll take place in a very different way and with very different results in every different context. So I think civil society has a key role to play in changing the relationship between a government and citizens, but so do lots of other institutions, and we shouldn't exaggerate any one part of that, but we should be thinking about the role that civil society can play in accelerating that process. Thank you. So... You know, you, you talked about um, institutions and how um, confrontation is not necessarily a bad thing and, and how do we evolve towards uh, more openness and, and more empowerment. So I'd like to ask... Uh, uh, Duncan Green. Too many Duncans. Mm. <laughs> in terms of how do we bring in bring in inclusion through citizen engagement because, you know, um, citizen engagement can take, um, take place at a level where it may be the ones who are already included are the ones whose voices are being heard, but there are a lot of groups which are excluded, and especially if you're looking at technology as a way of, uh, of getting citizens to engage, then I think that exclusion becomes even sharper and deeper. So just your thoughts on, on how do we make it more inclusive. Thanks, and um, it's good to be here. I'm a big fan of MOOCs, and um, we're developing some in Oxfam at the moment, so it would be good to learn from, from this exercise. Um, <clears throat> all my best lines have been stolen by the previous speakers, so I can't bang on about power, I can't bang on about conflict, I can't complain <laughs> about closing civil society space. So what I will do is slag off civil society just to be a bit more unusual. <laughs> so citizens are not the same as civil society organisations. In fact, there's an enormous gulf between them. Probably the, most, the largest and, I would argue, the most embedded civil society organisations in the world are faith organisations. And yet they're often kind of weirdly absent from the agenda of the bank, of the NGOs, of all sorts of people. We have the occasional 
kind of slightly exotic outreach to faith groups, but actually seeing them as the meat and drink of poor people's lives and the place where people get their values, where they get their social capital, where they learn to work together. The number of activists in Oxfam in Africa who I've spoken to started in the choir, you know, and then became, got to know uh, their colleagues and neighbours and then became active through that, that kind of thing. So that's just one part of citizenship which we tend to downplay private sector, producer associations, all sorts of places, the grains, uh, which are actually crucial to, to citizens' engagement. In Tahrir Square, when it got really nasty during the Egyptian Revolution, the key civil society organisation that defended people in the square was football club supporters. Right? They were the people who actually were seasoned in combat, <laughs> were used to defending <laughs> themselves, and weren't scared of the police. And they defended all the nice lefties during the attacks in, by the security forces in Tara Square. I don't know of any Oxfam project which works with football clubs, right? We should. So that's uh, one point I want to make. And, and otherwise, just echo the, it's not always nice, it's quite often nasty, and we mustn't close down the nastiness. Conflict is unpleasant, I don't like it, but it's often a driver of change. And this point that Vanessa raised about, you know, uh, uh, the, Car the Carnegie Endowment latest report, over 50 countries which are busily closing down mm -hmm. the space for these organisations we're desperate to engage uh, is pretty crucial. Oh, final point. Power and politics isn't just something which affects civil society organisations and civil society. It exists within civil society, <laughs> amazingly. Yes. Um, so, for example, how many of the people being engaged are women and how many are men? How many are young? and how many are old farts like me? Those sort of questions are absolutely crucial if you're actually going to have proper inclusion in uh, citizen engagement. Yeah. Actually, thank you. In fact, um, we were quite inspired to know that of the 14,000 people who have registered for this MOOC, 47% are women. So we're hoping that some of that message will go and, and it will bring about um, more participation of women and, and inclusion in that sense. Um, so a question from Frederick now. And what, uh, you worked a lot with institutions, and just your reflections on, you know, while open spaces are being closed and, um, you know, cooperation and confrontation are kind of not the important um, aspects that we should be looking at, really how do we get institutions to be more responsive and to, in fact, um, what, what kind of institutional changes are required so that this process in fact works and you know there's, there's responsiveness on, on both sides Thanks for that and, and thanks for the World Bank and everyone here for, for hosting us and for getting this discussion out to such a big audience I mean indeed it's not just that transparency doesn't necessarily or very often doesn't lead to accountability, it's that so many transparency norms um, aren't what they seem to be aren't actually that useful uh, they, they're so superficial. So in aid transparency norms, for example, are at such a high level of abstraction that, that there is no data there that can really be used by communities. There are no contracts in that information of a granular detail that can really be used for accountability. Uh, access to information laws exist in 100 countries now, but actually they're so poor in practice that most people can't use them. Uh, in you know, India is one of the rare exceptions where poor people use it, but actually it's the middle class that uses it more than anyone else. And, and so having these norms on the books actually doesn't mean 
all that much, in a sense. And so what I would make a distinction is, is on the one hand, so there are two things I just want to draw out in the few minutes here. One is making a distinction between three different kinds of feedback and perhaps three different ways of initiating citizen engagement, which draws a little bit on some of the earlier points. And I call it a feedback triangle, A, B, C. But A is principal-initiated, B is manager-initiated, and C is citizen-initiated. Mm-hmm. And so A is if the governor wants to know what's happening in his, in his province, is if DFID wants to know what is Oxfam doing in the field, or Oxfam HQ wants to know what's going on on the ground. The manager B wants to know what's going on with my project. How well am I doing? Do I know what's happening? Are the farmers really getting what they need? And C is citizen-owned and managed. And and all three have their raison d'être, and all three are important. It's not that there's a, a, a hierarchy between them. Uh, TripAdvisor is a form of type C, consumer engagement, right? So now we look at the number of stars a hotel has, but if it only has two points on TripAdvisor, that's much less interesting than a hotel with four stars and five points on TripAdvisor. And so you want a type A feedback plus type C. And, and so it's really a question of complementarity there. And, and so the first point to come to your question is, can we open up the discourse so that we see that there's complementarity between the three types? The three types exist in the consumer market. They've revolutionized certain types of, of consumer behavior, and, and they're certainly existing in the West, and they can exist in developing country contexts as well. And the second one is a culture of learning around this. And, and in terms of learning, uh, there is an indicator that we use, and, and it draws on a, a word that you used a bit pejoratively there, but yes, the concept of a fix. But not the fix in terms of a one-off solution of one law, for example, an access to information law being a fix, but in terms of multiple fixes of little problems, lots of lots of little problems, knowing whether they're being resolved, for example, by using that access to information law. So we call it a fix rate. So when you tell me that percentage, the efficacy of an institution, of an intervention, whether it's of type A, B, or C, I get some sense of how well it's working. And that's the only way that we can identify really developing a culture of learning around it, seeing how can I go from you know, the 20% to the 40 to 50% and see how I'm doing. And so we've developed an approach. It took us almost a decade to develop it. Where, where we can see that actually if it's implemented with some degree of consistency, it produces on average a fixed rate of 50% in the countries where we implement it. I just came back from, the, from, from DRC yesterday, from 10 days there. All my time spent actually with a priest, and so we're working with Commission Justice et the social justice arm of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. as well as with 200 schools in South Kivu. So we have the young, we have, <laughs> we have the church, and, and, and they're achieving remarkable things with this fix uh, with these fixes, resolving one problem after the other, of very good, well-intentioned donors who sometimes aren't actually delivering and always being as responsive as they should be to local communities. So these two concepts, opening up the the, the concept to this feedback triangle, but in any case, recognizing that there's a complementarity between these three different types of Engagement, And the other is there has to be a culture of learning around this. So confrontation is good, very important, but actually learning is pretty good as well. And, and, and if we, it's the only way to do that is if we have an outcome indicator that tells us something about what's really going on. Great. Thank you, Fred. So now my last question to Duncan. Okay. Great. And left. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what we're seeing from this MOOC is, uh, is really the impact of of new technology 
and access in a way, um, or technology being used in, in, a, in a very different way. So I wanted, um, Duncan, for you to speak a little bit on uh, what role do you think innovation in ICT can play um, in increasing participation, in increasing engagement, and providing feedback loops. But also, um, since Frederick talked about learning, um, how do we harvest that big data or you know, get evidence in a way to show whether we are learning from this or not? Maybe that, if you don't want to answer the last one, that's fine too. Okay. Um, I think I think this, got to look at the starting point, and the starting point is the same as looking at citizen engagement with or without technology. It's looking at, um, you know, which citizens are we looking to engage, mm -hmm. and for what? So I work for a program called Making All Voices Count, and um, it's a program looking to support innovation, particularly technical in innovation, um, in citizen engagement, accountable governance, um, and the all aspect of the name of the program is really, really important. And so, you know, we see technology has huge potential for reaching new groups of people, but it's also introducing um, kind of new, new inequalities, new access yeah. to, you know, look at um, new digital divides. It also potentially um, exacerbates existing divides. Um, it also raises questions around kind of sa safety and privacy, um, so, you know, you look at citizens, you need to break that down a bit further. And um, different citizens, particularly marginalised groups, are at risks, at different risks, and are ex exposed to different risks as well. So I think we need to be considering that. Um, what else has, have other people not covered? <laughs> um, and then I, the other thing with technology particularly is the... What a lot of people are trying to do is making direct links between citizens and their governments, mm -hmm. but not really questioning whether that's desirable. Right. In a lot of cases, you know, particularly marginalised communities, do they want that direct link? Mm -hmm. um, and then related to that is kind of previous governance work suggests that collective action mm -hmm. is really important in achieving accountability. But if you're driving people individually, how does that actually speak to what we know about collective action? Um, and there's been a, you know, a fair amount of work looking at the role of technology within collective action. Some people are coining the phrase connective action. Um, and then we need to be looking a lot, a lot more closely into that. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is um, questions of framing, and that framing really matters. So we need to th think about the framing of the problems that we're looking to utilise technology to address. So, for example, using very kind of technical feedback loop type analogies, ways of framing problems, um, you're casting users, you know, casting citizens as users, as customers, and as a result, you're, you're just resulting in these kind of functional information gap type initiatives. Um, so it, from my experience working on Making All Voices Count, I'm looking at a lot of, a lot of technology-driven projects, and all their, really, their kind of theories of change behind what they're doing is you know, that governments don't, know, don't improve public services mm -hmm. because they don't know there's a problem, and that some SMS reporting tool 
letting the government know is, is automatically going to change things. And so the question I'd ask would, you know, the, would more kind of rights-based framings actually lead us to, um, I suppose, looking at what uh, Soren was saying about upstream participation, getting back to thinking um, as uh, Andrea Cornwall and John Gaventa were talking about in, what, 2000, 2003, you know, moving from the kind of users and choosers to the makers and shapers of government. Um, so, you know, if we look at the question, is tech-enabled citizen engagement a game-changer? Um, I think whether it can be depends on what game it is that you're playing and, who, uh, and who's playing that game. Um, so for now, I don't think tech really is a game-changer, but it does give us a new set of tactics to use right. in playing that game. Thank you. Thanks, Duncan. And I think I, I liked your, your point also about creating um, a different kind of exclusion through the digital divide, and especially on, on um, highly marginalized groups, this one-to-one -one interaction, and also um, really moving from um, collective action to connected action, and, and how does that impact us? Um, so my last question to all, all panelists, a very quick one, um, which is... Um, how do you think in development institutions like the World Bank and DFID and, and so on should really, uh, how, how should they promote um, citizen engagement and um, exactly uh, how can this in fact impact the way that, uh, that institutions like the World Bank and Asian Development Bank, etc., are um, are trying to bring about uh, development. I mean, is, is there, do you see in a way that this is not a one-way process, right? Okay, here are institutions like, uh, here are development institutions who are trying to bring in citizen engagement. It could be a tick box thing as well, but how, do, how does that citizen engagement actually, uh, what potential do you see that in, in impacting development institutions in the way that they work and, and how effective can they be? Just, I think I, I see Vanessa smiling. So. Uh, it's, uh, let's be provocative. It's tricky yeah. because the bottom line, I think, is you've got to be clear about who your client is. Mm -hmm. And if yeah. your client is a government, that is different from if your client are the citizens. They, that is different. And so being kind of honest, so obviously, and typically, the World Bank, its clients are governments. It makes agreements with governments. It's got to be honest about its, what it can do and what it can't do in that, in that client relationship. That is not to say that it needs to engage directly with that question and about if its vision is, is genuinely um, development and empowerment how does it think about its client? But to be honest, that's what I see. Is that, that is a real issue. And the way that it frames its incentives to its staff, you know, about getting money out the door and loans and processing and so on versus, you know, results for mm -hmm. citizens mm -hmm. as its client, mm -hmm. that is a fundamental shift. I'm all for it. But, you know, you want to talk about a power game that's going to happen yeah, in an institution, yeah. that's going to be pretty massive. Um, I personally think it's a, a key one that needs to happen. 
Because at the end of the day, I mean, whichever agency we may be working through, if, if the whole idea is that um, there should be service delivery to the citizens, you know, then I think um, it's, it's not the agency or the institution that we're working through, but actually it's the impact on the ground. And unless we hear back whether a service is being delivered, whether, garbage, whether your garbage is being picked up, whether the textbooks have been delivered at the school or not, then we also wouldn't know. So, Frederick. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Frederick and Owen, Owen and Frederick, whichever way you want to do it. Um, so, a couple of things about this. One is, I think, it, and this is true of all international development, not just citizen engagement, we should be modest about the role of outside organizations like yeah. the World Bank or DFID or whoever. Uh, these are intrinsically internal organic processes, the relationship between citizens and institutions and the state, and we shouldn't exaggerate our ability um, to, uh, to improve things, and we shouldn't underestimate our ability to screw things up. So, you know, let's, let's be thoughtful about what, what we want. Let, let's be careful what we wish for here. Um, secondly, in theory, um, the international development community signed up in Accra in 2008 to the idea that country ownership means country and not just government ownership. But you wouldn't, know, you wouldn't detect that if you look at the behavior, say, of the World Bank in its relationship with governments um, who, as Vanessa said, they are their primary client. And so we're still stuck in a world, partly because we don't know the answer to this question, of what is it that international... Who, if, if we're not only dealing with governments then who are we dealing with and how and what is our legitimacy and our accountability and what are the constraints on us and what, how does that work? So we're, we're in this kind of... We kind of think that we ought to be working with, with people other than the government, but we're very unsure about how, how we should do that and what our uh, authorising environment is for that. Um, the third thing for me is that um, there are a set of things that outside bodies can do to be more transparent and accountable themselves, which would be a really good start. I'm not saying that that would solve all the world's problems or that you know, this would lead to enormous improvements necessarily in some or all developing countries. But before we go and lecture other people about how they should engage with citizens in, in service delivery and, in, and be transparent... We ought to be... Pub I mean, it is scandalous that we do not publish information about where our aid money is spent, for whose benefit, the contracts, how it's organised. Mm -hmm. And although a large number of donors have said they will do that and the mechanism exists for them to do that, uh, and many of them do a little bit of it, most of that information is still not widely available to most people. So we should be, before we tell other people how to organise their affairs and other societies uh, how things should be, we could do a lot more on extractive industries transparency, aid transparency, clarity about how climate change funds are flowing, clarity about military assistance and military cooperation. We could be uh, sharing information about um, our, the behaviour of our companies in developing countries. We could have country-by-country country reporting of payments for extractives. A, we could be um, sharing information about tax and international tax system. So we could get our own house in order about things that would enable greater citizen engagement and greater internal accountability within developing countries where we are the source of the secrecy. Mm -hmm. the, uh, these are problems that only we can fix 
And wouldn't it be nice before we helped other people solve their problems if we tackled some of our problems uh, as a good starting point and then we might have some legitimacy to go and help other people fix their problems? Very well said. So, Frederick. I actually don't think the issue is so much state versus citizens. It's actually about, so the citizen engagement agenda could actually be thought of differently as a different way of engaging with the effectiveness of the state. Because the problem is that aid donors, World Bank and DFID and others, engage with the executive in a very limited portion of the executive, but not really with necessarily the state as a key institution to bring development. No country that has ever lifted a large portion of its population out of poverty has ever done it without the state playing a major role. It's never happened. And it's not going to happen. There are not going to be exceptions of that down the road. And so it's really about reframing. So you could say the citizen engagement agenda is a different way of looking at making the state more effective. And, and so I don't have an issue, per se, about it being about the state. But it's a question of how to make the state be different. And, and so in the, the World Bank's, and this is what I think is a bit refreshing about the World Bank's thinking and approach to this, not to be too soft on them, but nonetheless is you know, distinguishing between you know, these four different ways of citizen engagement about suggestions, monitoring, complaints, and satisfaction. And, and so I'm going to be a bit controversial in the sense of saying let's be incredibly instrumental about that engagement. Let's see what is being delivered on those four standards of monitoring, complaints, suggestions, and satisfaction. And if, if you find mechanisms that are really demonstrating that they make progress, and that progress isn't going to be the same in Ethiopia as in DRC and elsewhere, but they're going to find their own mechanisms to do that, taking on the, the knowledge at the community level, those innovations that you talk about, etc. But let's be, I would say, terribly instrumental about that, actually, and see what are those mechanisms. Then foreign bodies can play some kind of meaningful role. The problem now is that there are lots of these ideas around about the role of technology, about other things, fanciful theory of, theories of change. And those have not delivered. And so according, looking at those four different elements, and they're not the only ones, but you know, there is actually far too little progress happening along those four uh, major indicators. Thank you. Shall we open it up to the audience? So this is what we're going to do. We have about um, 20 minutes. So we'll take three questions at a time. Um, state your name and ask the question, and then I'll... You can either direct it uh, to a specific panelist or we can just open it up to any panelist who wants to take it. So let me start with one, two, and three. So. Ah, excellent. Hi, I'm Amy Pollard from the participation charity Involve. Um, so I signed up to this MOOC uh, during this event itself. Um, it was pretty friction-free. Uh, uh, I just—it was about five or six clicks in order to do it. Really, really quick and easy. Um, I wasn't asked for any demographic information, and I wasn't asked to give my consent for any demographic information to be mined on me regarding my gender, uh, my income level, etc. How do you substantiate these claims you've been making about this um, <laughs> course reaching such a diverse and you know poor, etc., um, marginalised groups? Hi, uh, thank you for the uh, event and everyone involved. Um, Gareth Wall from the Commonwealth Local Government Forum. Um, at the moment, uh, uh, Madden mentioned decentralisation and, and local government. The last panel, uh, question was talking about the role of engaging just with the state and then 
citizens. The MOOC seems to have been put together by academics and civil society. Uh, where, where's local government? Thank you. And there's... Yeah, there's someone behind that. Uh, Nico Heller of the Democracy School. Um, to me, this feels very top-down. I mean, you were talking all about this bottom-up, but I mean, how many experts are going to lecture? How many thousands of students? Um, I said, you know, and what's the class size of this? I mean, what kind of level of participation is actually possible? Um, did you at all consider, you know, making it more sort of a train-the-trainer kind of exercise where you are actually engaging with local facilitators rather than with citizens themselves to kind of get some leverage? So on, uh, I'll just do the three questions and then we'll come back to you. So on, on your question regarding um, you weren't asked to register, you know, weren't asked to say your gender or anything. So, you know, we're hosting this MOOC on Coursera. And Coursera is the one who provides us with data uh, in terms of number of people registered. So it started with about um, 11,000 something on the Sunday, March 15th, that was launched. And we were told today that there were 14,000. And, and then they broke it into um, gender. So it's a, I'm so glad that you, rose, uh, you raised that because I am going to go back and ask them exactly what sort of data they're, they're mining. Um, Thank you. Oh, it's a survey. So, but, but, it, but is it sort of an optional survey if you don't want? Okay, so in which case we may not actually have accurate data. So that's something. Um, thank you. And your question, who would like to answer that? We should say we're not the organisers of the yeah. course, so we're not really... <laughs> Sorry. You need the other we, one. We, we, we needed Sorry. panel A, really. Sorry. Did you want to take that? Did you want to... Yes. Yeah. So on the role of government, so we did reach out proactively to government, and you will find presenters of the MOOC from government. Local. Local government. Mm -hmm. Well... Sub-national. You mean sub Yeah. Mm, well, we have no, not directly. No. Just say no. No. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a challenge, but government is very involved, and uh, we make a real effort. And uh, in the discussions, a lot of government officials participate. But we, it's true that there's much more content from civil society and academia than from government. And the uh, just, oh, although sure. I'm not involved in this MOOC, MOOCs are iterative, right? So they can learn and improve, and I'm sure this one will. So all this stuff is worth pointing out. Yeah. It's not a done deal. It's not a textbook. Right. And actually, exactly in the same vein, on the third question, where this is very top-down, and, you know, did we think about training the trainers? Remember, uh, we're using MOOC uh, really for um, advocacy and for getting the, the word out. It is not really... Um, so, and, and, and so, you know, it, it has a limited use. It's raising awareness. It's not really um, starting to train people into citizen engagement at all. Um, so I think, I think the purposes of the objective is a little bit different. Um, so I hope that, that answers your um, concerns. Um, okay, we have one, two, and three. Hello, my name is Kevin Chua. I'm just an interested uh, citizen, I guess. Um, when I hear about citizen engagement, um, 
one of the things that really springs to mind for me is big society and how when, when you paint the dream of what a big society and citizen engagement can look like um, and how great it can be, um, I worry that it's just another way for governments to actually put in place a program and then actually say citizens are empowered and then you take away services. So I'd just like to understand how, how that's viewed. Hi, I'm Jenny Ross. Um, I had a, a question which kind of links to Owen's point about um, how sometimes these things can make things worse. Um, I teach an online course um, sort of in this area which also has coaching involved and the kinds of challenges which people bring up are, are genuinely really quite tricky. So it's fine to say that it's an awareness raising exercise but when people actually do start trying to do this they often find themselves in really serious problems. So in the last week I've had someone talking to me about how he brought a district official and a community together and the official had stolen money and the community threatened to kill him. Uh, the official said I don't need to talk to you, I don't need your 14,000 votes, get lost. You know, I had a, a guy saying, I went to meet my local official. This is in, both of these are in conflict-affected states. Um, he won't talk to me because I'm from the wrong tribe. What do I do? Uh, I have, I've had someone saying, we've done cash transfers to schools and to communities. We want to use social accountability mm -hmm. to make sure that money's been spent well. In a conflict-affected state, they want, they want to broadcast this you know, out and say, your headmaster's got your money. You know, what is that going to do? That's going to lead to headmasters being run out of town. It's going to mm -hmm. lead to people <laughs> being killed. It's not going to achieve the objective. And so I think it's really important to understand that these approaches um, at the theoretical level are very attractive. <laughs> but when you're actually implementing them, they're actually quite risky and quite dangerous. And I think we have to be honest that there is an ideological uh, a part of this, which is that donors are losing their influence over the people they give money to, and now to some extent they're subcontracting the responsibility for holding aid money accountable to vulnerable people in risky places. And I just think it may not be the role of the MOOC, but there is a real need for people to have spaces mm -hmm. to discuss the real challenges that they face and the risks that they face in implementing these approaches, because in a lot of countries, it's, it's really, really difficult. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I gathered that. <laughs> and there was a question there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Liza, and I'm also an interested uh, citizen. My question is very closely linked to their two questions in terms of, I'm just wondering, um, who is an engaged citizen and what does an, an engaged citizen look like? Um, and how much, I guess, engagement is enough to say this citizen is engaged versus mm -hmm. this one is not? Like, how do we different, How do we say this citizen is engaged, basically? Okay. I'm going to open this to the panelists. Is that good? Okay. Yes? Yeah, I'll, I'll commit Harry Kiri first. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the big society question I think is a good question and it links a bit to Jenny's point which is, which is is this an instrumental exercise or is this something else 
I hate to use the word transformational, but let's say transformational. Um, there's a big instrumental element in here, which is, yeah, we want services to be more efficient. We want to yeah, get better feedback loops in place. We want to make the trains run on time, you know, that kind of stuff. That's important to poor people. It's not, you know, uh, activists tend to go poo-poo, but actually that is quite important. But it does raise the question of are you actually consolidating the current system or looking for a change? And I was agonizing about this all day on another, on another issue. And I think it's, yes, the, the, the litmus test must be not only is it making the things more efficient, but is it expanding the voice and agency of people who are currently excluded from that conversation? If it's doing both, then great. If it's just making things more efficient, then I, then I worry. Um, I'm going to stop there, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, just, I was just contemplating Harry Kerry, but actually I'm not in the mood, so I'll tell you I want to have a crack at this question of who is an engaged citizen. And uh, I think it was Amartya Sen who had this um, important warning for us about treating people as um, uh, uh, with a single characteristic. You're Jewish or you're gay or you're Catholic and urging and, and saying that that way fascism lies and urging us to understand that everybody has multiple identities and in all our lives we are many different things um, and we need to stop thinking of people as either an engaged citizen or not an engaged citizen. We, most people are engaged in some things and, as it were, rely on someone else to be engaged in other things that might well be important to them but... but they don't have time for or not that not so important. So, you know, I, I rely on the fact that there are people who are, you know, um, fighting the good fight on all kinds of things that are important to me but I don't have time to engage with. But I'm particularly engaged in open government and transparency and I'm sure there are lots of people who passively are glad that I'm doing that but don't themselves, you know, are themselves engaged in their church or in their you know, campaign for something else. And so I think we should recognise that society is made up of people who are variously engaged in different things and the fact that they don't always spend time on something. You know, if we, if we all spent all our time collectively deciding everything, was it Oscar Wilde who said, you know, so we'd, we'd all spend our entire time in committee, right? Um, so we do... We, we, part, of, part of a society is building trust that there are systems, that there, are, that there is a media that's going to expose corruption, that there are civil society groups that are concentrating on things. You know, I'm, although I don't work for Amnesty International, I'm glad they're there tackling human rights issues and raising their importance, and I don't always agree with them, but I'm glad that they do what they do. Uh, and I, but I just don't have time to do that myself. So I, I don't think we should think of any citizen as being either engaged or not engaged. Every citizen is engaged in their family, in their community, in their church, in their trade union, to greater and lesser degrees. And you will all, you, it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who wasn't engaged in some way in some of those things. And I think what we're talking about when we talk about more engaged citizens is finding ways to um, enable those communities of people who are interested in these things to be more effective and more powerful in um, changing the institutions around them. But when you think of things like TripAdvisor or Wikipedia, it's a very, very small part of the population that actually does the reviews or edits Wikipedia. 
the, 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 when we talk about the wisdom of crowds, the, crowds, the actual crowds who, um, who do these things are a very, very small percentage of the population, but a very small percentage of a large population is actually quite a large number of people, and it's quite a lot of people who are engaging on, on all our behalfs in some sense. So I, I, I think it's a kind of problematic. How do these, how do these get authorization, and, and how, how can they speak for us? Um, and I think you know, society evolves these kind of corrective mechanisms to constrain and authorize these groups. But I don't think we should be looking for every citizen to be engaged in everything that affects all of us, because uh, none of us want that, actually. Not exactly. Can yes. I disagree? Yes. Yeah, on you go. Of course. With, or a lot. <laughs> no, no. Well, just with a slightly sharper definition, in a sense, because in, there's the word engage, but there's the word citizen. And so to be an engaged consumer, to be an engaged member of a community is one thing. To be an engaged friend is one thing. But to be an engaged citizen, so citizen means a relationship to a state. Yeah, you can be non-citizens. If you're a non-citizen, if you're a refugee in this country, you're not a citizen. Very simple. Right. So there is a thing about relationship to a state here. Now, that means that you know, there is a risk here of not including many people, and that is, is a big issue. But... But there is something about a relationship to a state. So you cannot even be a non-citizen who's trying to engage. That's yet a different issue. And so I do think there is, a, a an issue about politics and the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an engaged consumer who writes on TripAdvisor is not an engaged citizen in that sense. And, well, he's an engaged consumer. And, yeah. and but so when so just think about it in terms of those four categories, just as a as a thought experiment to start with, about monitoring, suggesting, complaining, and satisfied. You know? So if those are elements of engagement as a citizen, there are various ways that, that can be expressed. And it can be from graffiti to 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 sending something on Twitter. And but those are forms of engagement. And and it can take so many forms. But there is something here about a relationship to power and the state to services, to political parties, to all the informal and other expressions of state power. That, that is what I think this agenda is meant by. Right? So it, and, and someone who wants to hold companies to account for the way they're investing is clearly a part of that extended debate, and, and all the more so in resource-rich countries, as you were talking about. But, so, but, but there is something here about the nature of state power and, and how it affects people that, that this debate, I think, is all about. Can I ask a quick question? When, when in the UK lorry drivers blocked the roads because of petrol prices, were they engaged consumers or engaged citizens? <laughs> Bring it up to, to the open, and, and I would say they're very much engaged citizens, right? They're using their collective power in relation to that. But that's but because yeah, they didn't like yeah, what a yeah. company mm, was. Sure. Set. Okay, sure. So I think there's much more blurred than you're implying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, there's one additional thing to that is, you know, the, the choice to engage. Do I have a choice to be a disengaged citizen or be an engaged citizen? And I think a lot of us in a lot of political systems do not have that choice. Um, yeah, one, two, and well, we have four questions, five questions. So we'll take all five questions, and then we have exactly five minutes. So, yeah, very statement. My name is Mary McNeil and I yeah. was involved in um, I would refer to the question of what is an engaged citizen, I would refer in the course to the lecture by John Gaventa because in addition to what Owen and Frederick said, which I agree with, he talks about 
the element of empowerment that makes you feel that you can be engaged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can say it's intrinsic, empower, you know, intrinsic or uh, incentivized, but I do think that we try in the course to, to make that statement, that there's something there that empowers you to feel that you can engage with the state or you can engage as a consumer. And in many societies, particularly among the people that are not included, they don't have that capacity. Mm -hmm. So there's a capacity to engage that, that John Gaventa talks about very well in the course. Excuse me, I just I? wanted to say that uh, Mary uh, was part of the team which prepared this MOOC and, and you know, shaped it. Did yeah, you? sorry, I, I just wanted to add to that, that um, surely an engaged citizen, um, that, that engagement actually matters. Isn't that a really important part of engagement? That, you know, we've talked about the kind of instrumental use of mm -hmm. participation and actually what's the point? If it doesn't actually matter, I'm still engaged. Mm -hmm. This is frustrating. Me, right. <laughs> they're annoyed. Yeah, they were engaged for very long. Yeah. <laughs> but in actual sense, they're engaged, right? Yeah. But are, if if their engagement doesn't matter at all, is is that still engagement? It would be catastrophic yes. if every form of engagement led to an outcome. So you know, there have to be some barriers. Twitter, Twitter. <laughs> So every fascist movement, right, should be allowed to see their outcome and their vision fulfilled. Right. I mean, you, there have to be, you know, there are some barriers. <laughs> no, uh, but in the, way, in the way in which the, the term is being used, yeah. surely that's an important part of it. Mm. Well, it would be nice if engagement had an effect. Comrades, we have to engage as citizens. By definition, we have engaged if they're engaged. But actually, sorry, I can't resist. <laughs> <laughs> it goes this thing about, you know... Um, not to let, and I'm sure the course isn't going to do this, but not to let it become a, you know, a tool-based, box-ticking thing. And, it, and, I, and I see it a lot. And the risk is big, because it's not just that you... Um, that it's, I mean, a minimum worst-case scenario, it legitimises something that shouldn't be legitimised. Really worst-case scenarios, it's incredibly demoralising, and you're less likely to engage in the future. So unless you can structure a genuine engagement process, stay away because yes. you are wasting people's valuable time. You make it less likely for them to want to engage in the future. You are doing harm. So I just I couldn't resist. Let's get in. <laughs> okay, we had. Did we mark out all the people? So there's one right at the back, and then we have okay two right at the back, and then we'll come up front. Um, good evening. Um, I'm a master's student at the LSE. Um, my question is, when I think of China um, in the 70s, when the government introduced the child, one-child policy, they didn't really engage any citizen. They actually forced women to abort. And, um, but the fact is that they did lift a huge amount of people out of liber uh, poverty and also achieved rapid economic growth. And when I compare India, for instance, nowadays, um, they have a democratic country, and as far as I know, they persuade family to reduce the, uh, you know, their children and try to achieve a nuclear family. But if you see, look at the result, it's, the progress is very slow. So my question is, do you think... To, for some 
concrete situation, it is actually legitimate for government to say our aims actually, um, 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 what is the word? Our aims um, justify, thank you, the means, and we have to we have to eliminate the decision maker, or like to just to have a elite group to make decisions mm -hmm. for the whole country. Okay. One, two. Um, hi, my name is David Dellner. Um My question is, um, do you think that uh, donor agencies and, and institutions such as the World Bank um, can actually uh, support social accountability if it is something very organic, if it is something very much about managing conflict while aid agencies are risk averse by nature? Um, and perhaps to make it a bit more specific, uh, in Ethiopia, for example, the World Bank is doing a very large uh, social accountability program. Um, in that kind of context, do you see any uh, obstacles in the sense that the government will obviously be involved um, and perhaps certain ethnic groups will not be able to take part in this de-social accountability um, initiatives. So um, how can the World Bank actually manage that then? Uh, yeah. How does World Bank actually manage? Could you just put it concisely? So how, do you, how does the World Bank actually manage that? You're talking about how do we manage social accountability against... How, how, how would the World Bank manage uh, ethnic exclusion mm -hmm. in programs on social accountability that it okay. funds? Okay, thank you. And there was one right there, and then we have the last one here. Hi, I'm Fia from Brussels Development. Uh, my question is um, going back to the points of who we are engaging. Um, so we do a lot of work with like, young people from um, small rural communities and we help them to participate in decision-making processes at a global level. So for example, we physically um, help them to get to spaces that the World Bank or UN institutions create for people to participate. And what we find that our role in this space is to basically act as translators. Because when people get to these spaces, they simply find the language completely inaccessible and they find that it's very hard for them to participate and make a contribution to these spaces. So how do we create an enabling environment at that level that allows citizens to participate? Because otherwise, it does become a bit of a thick boxing exercise. Uh, hi there, I'm David McKenzie. I'm, I'm actually an election agent for the forthcoming general election, so this has been very, very interesting in citizen engagement. Um, really the question I wanted to ask, and it's, it's maybe, it's a difficult question to answer, right? So for, <laughs> for how, how do you manage citizen engagement versus responsibility and accountability? The reason I ask this is in areas um, such as Greece, where there's now been some admittedly harboured resentment towards groups like the IMF and the European Union, um, because obviously Greece, the population, wants to get themselves out of austerity. And I would say from a citizen engagement point of view, that the massive increase in Syriza's vote would, would be citizen engagement. Um, but then they have to battle against groups like the IMF and the European Union. So how do groups like that engage in, in citizen engagement while also acting in a responsible manner to the, to the rest of their engagement 
throughout the Eurozone and other places. Is it the same as this question about that the popular push is not actually good for the broader good? No, it's, it's more in regards to, for instance, when you get citizen engagement to a point where people say, you know, whatever your views are, we don't want any more austerity, but then there's other groups that have to take the responsibility for a larger group, such as the IMF or the yeah. European Union. How do you then include citizen engagement in areas like that where there's a more larger community, you know, sort of in places like the European Union versus a singular uh, country that, that wants a particular outcome? Did you want to start by answering that question? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were very engaged there. I think we should invite engagement from the That's audience. right. I mean, are there people who want to answer some of the questions which have been asked? Yeah, seriously. So, um, So I don't think anybody's arguing for democracy by, for, for government by plebiscite here, right? So you're not saying that the only decisions, uh, all decisions will be taken by citizen engagement. So let's not sort of set up some straw men thing. You are trying to get much better uh, balance between the voice of the insiders and the voice of the people who are excluded. And I think that's... My answer on the, on the one-child policy, uh, uh, the single-child policy uh, uh, question in China is, A, Amartya Sen's lovely study uh, uh, comparing China and Kerala, where he showed that girls' education is just as effective in reducing uh, family size as a horribly coercive and human rights-violating policy. Um, and that, in general, just... I, I like Sen's definition of development. You know, if you, if you define development purely as GDP per capita, you get into all sorts of tangles about benevolent dictators and all the rest of it. If you take Sen's very clever redefinition of development as freedoms to be and to do, then growth is a part of that, but so are lots of other things, then I think you get a much more nuanced and interesting discussion about development. On the populism question, I think that goes with the plebiscite thing. So it's interesting how... Can you steer a course between autocracy and populism involving citizen engagement? That's the essay question that comes out for me from tonight. <laughs> yeah. um. So the purpose of government, and, and government is, is a... Uh, is, there isn't a state. There are, there are many different institutions and, and many different parts of government and many different layers of government, including subnational government. Is, is to reconcile competing interests, right? If, if there were no competing interests, there wouldn't, there, we wouldn't need to have government to reconcile these interests. We could just have free markets and things, right? So governments do things in, you know, in, uh, like have compulsory purchase orders to enable you to build a railway line so that somebody who owns land doesn't want a railway line on it, in the end gets told, well, I'm afraid you have to sell your railway line because there's some greater good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so we're used to the idea, aren't we, that 
Um, governments sometimes make people do things that they don't want to do because it contributes to some greater good, right? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, there's a lot, there's a, a hell of a lot good about that. We would, we would not be happy people if we didn't have governments uh, to constrain some people to enable all of us to live better lives. And that's true at, at this level of different layers of government and different layers of community, and, and it's not just between nation-states and supranational organizations, but it's within nation-states as well. It's uh, competition within states for allocate for resources, for example. Competition not just geographically, but between different kinds of, of communities. So we shouldn't imagine that the outcome of citizens is kind of Duncan's point, that the outcome of citizen engagement is that everybody's going to get what they want all the time. Um, because that, is, that isn't the goal of this. The goal of this is to ensure that what we don't have is a small, powerful elite getting what they want all the time and nobody else getting, anything, getting what they want any of the time. Right? So it's to change the power relationship, but, it, but it's, it, it can't and it won't eliminate the fact that this is in the end about the, recon, the reconciliation of complete, competing mm -hmm. claims. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, how can we do that better? Uh, I just want to answer this point about um, what can donors do to support social accountability, and the, the, you, you gave the example of the World Bank in Ethiopia. When I was living in Ethiopia, um, while this um, uh, social accountability program was, was being run, uh, a lot of Ethiopian friends of mine, not huge supporters of the government mainly, um, thought of, referred to this program as an astroturf program. Uh, and by astroturf, they meant it was supposed to be grassroots organizations, but, the, but these were plastic <laughs> grassroots, right? They weren't actual grassroots organizations. They had no actual roots. They were being created and invented by international organizations and donors who were funding them. And the accountability of these organizations was to the people who funded them. And the people who funded them was not local Ethiopians. It was us. And a lot of Ethiopia, uh, you know, this is anecdote rather than evidence, but a lot of my Ethiopian friends were um, angry that we had the audacity to, to fund and set up and, and direct and steer these organizations that claimed to speak for Ethiopian people, but they had the sense that these were not genuine grassroots organizations. And I think there is a a real challenge for us because those, you know, those organizations, I was living in Addis, they would call me into their strategy away days in various international hotels and ask me to tell them what donor priorities were likely to be for the coming year so that they could orient their strategy around that because that was how they'd get the funding. Right? And I was struck how rarely the conversation, at least when I was in the room, was about what their alleged beneficiaries and supporters wanted. And Duncan, I'm sure, will tell you how great Oxfam is at supporting local civil society organizations to be genuinely locally accountable. And, you know, they walk in solidarity with them, but they're not answerable to Oxfam. And I, I hope that's right. I think it's a really hard thing to get right. And it's an especially hard thing to get right for organizations like the World Bank or DFID. It's probably much easier for an organization like Oxfam to get that right. Uh, and we have had this experience over many years of um, trying to create participative processes. I mean, who remembers PRSPs? 
Many of us were involved in what seemed like a good idea, right? We're going to create participatory processes and we're going to get voices from the poor that's going to shape programming. And of course it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. And so we just need to be thoughtful about what these things are telling us. Many of those Ethiopian NGOs um, are also implementing organisations in these programmes that they're reporting on, right? So there's a, there's a strong community of interest in saying that it's all going swimmingly, um, and we should just be thoughtful about how meaningful those kinds of social accountability programs are. I think there are things that we can do about social accountability, but you know, obviously we can do it badly as well as well. Anybody else wants to speak to this? We're winding up. Soren, did you want to say anything on social accountability? Very well. It's hard to follow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just gives me opportunity to actually talk about the program which is called GPSA, Global Program for Social Accountability, which the World Bank has initiated with many donors, civil society and others. So the, what was mentioned before, um, so the World Bank actually has very strongly recognized that development is much more complex and we engage with multiple stakeholders today. Mm -hmm. So almost all projects do not only engage with the state but there are very proactive forms of engagement with civil society, indigenous peoples, and uh, non-state actors. So um, coming to minorities and indigenous peoples, for instance, there's a whole policy, so there's a World Bank policy on indigenous peoples where it's mandatory to engage and to have indigenous peoples' consultations and uh, policies around this. There's also an independent inspection panel, so anybody who feels that their rights have been violated can go to the inspection panel and claim the rights that these projects have violated the rights. This has resolved in a lot of conflict resolution. So there are now several mechanisms in place where the bank and other donors actually do work more directly with civil society and non-state actors. Just Thank you, Sean. Uh, I think we will wrap this up now. Thank you, everybody, for coming and for being so engaged. Um, <laughs> and definitely I'd uh, like to um, thank our panelists, Vanessa Herringshaw, Duncan Green, Duncan Edwards, Frederick Galting, Owen Bader, and Jean-Paul as our host. <laughs>